0: NA member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, JP Morgan, Chase & Co.
1: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics.
2: Pushkin. Pushkin.
3: I'm Khalil Gibran Muhammad. I'm Ben Austin. We are two best friends. One black. One white. I'm a historian. And I'm a journalist. And this is Some of My Best Friends Are.
4: Some of my best friends are... In this show, we wrestle with the challenges and
3: the absurdities of a deeply divided, separate and unequal country. And nowhere is this more apparent than in the American school system from K through higher education. Mm. Today, we're talking about the recent Supreme Court decision banning race-based affirmative action in higher education and what that means for the future. Man, oh man, that's right. And we have
4: someone on the show that couldn't be better to speak with, our friend Honorima Bargava. Honorima has this amazing pedigree. She served in the Civil Rights Division at the US Department of Justice during the Obama administration, focusing on education issues. And before that, she also worked on education at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. And Honorima was actually at the Supreme Court hearings when this affirmative action case was being argued, so she knows what she's talking about. And she also happens to be an old friend. Honorima grew up two blocks from me in my neighborhood, and she went to our high school, Kenwood Academy. You know, it always comes back to Chicago.
3: That's right. Anarima is gonna tell us about what she calls the setup behind this case, and the campaign to keep our country essentially segregated, or at least to take us back to the quote-unquote good old days based on this ruling, so let's get to it.
4: Let's go.
5: All
4: right, Anarima, welcome to Some of My Best Friends Are. So excited to be here with you. And, and it's like Anarima, a homecoming. That's right. It's like a homecoming, for real, because you and I, we go way back to when we were, we were shorties. There, there were <laughs> days after school when I was a little one, and I, since we grew up in the same neighborhood, I would get taken back to your house for after school. And I just wanna say that my after school snacks at my house, like <laughs> I would make myself a bowl of cereal. And if I was really ambitious, I would fry up some sizzling. And <laughs> at your house, at your house, your mom made homemade samosas. Wow. It was crazy. Oh, wow. Delicious. Every day,
5: every day she made samosas for you. Whenever you showed up, it was like a daily, <laughs> a daily practice. I was a little bit more of a shorty than you were because I remember, while well, I told this story all through high school, which is that I said that you and your brother babysat me. It might've just been your brother, but this was a really important story for me to tell everyone that I, you know, I got to spend some time with Ben Austin when I was, when I was a kid, um, quality time <laughs> getting babysat and e- eating samosas. Because
4: I was like the big man on campus. I was like the.
5: You know, I'm not. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna talk about, you know, the the big man on campus moment. I feel like Khalil might get a bit, a little bit jealous or sad here. So I just, oh, I'll just say, wow. may, maybe, maybe. Yeah.
3: Yeah. yeah. Well, that, he he was he was much cooler than I was, and now that I know he was, he was eating samosas even more, uh, more in the in the in the know than I was. So look, we all went to the best high school in America, you know, hands down, Kenwood Academy, home of the Broncos. And, uh, you know, this is a public high school. It's on the south side of Chicago. We've talked about it on our show many, many times, majority black uh, student population. But obviously, we had some white kids, we had some Jewish kids, but we haven't talked that much about our Asian population. And Turns out that some of my best friends from high school, from Kenwood, were also of Asian descent, in your case, Anna Marine, was South Asian. So, like, what was it like to be a student, you know, in this black, white world as, as a, a little girl with a crush or a young woman, I should say, with a crush on Ben? <laughs> <laughs> not, Wait, not did, the I, last part i,
5: I didn't hear that part i, I was focus, talking about other focus
3: on yeah, the yeah we, part. We, we all yeah. know how that works right it's my friend who who has the crush i get it i get it
5: <laughs> I, you, you do i i mean i, I might have had a, another few crushes in, in your class so i'll i'll, I'll leave it at, i'll leave it at that we can talk about that some other day uh i i will i will say uh it made us there weren't that many South Asian students around. I mean, there weren't that many kids on the South side who was South Asian mm. or, um, and the kids who were coming into Kenwood, a, a lot of the the Asian kids I think were coming from across the city. And so I think in some ways uh, we got to be whoever we wanted to be. Mm. Right. So you, you mm. kind of got to flow through because people didn't know exactly what to do with you mm. other than your mom made samosas and, you know, my brother used to get called Gandhi all the time because I was the only uh, oh, you know, Indian person ever, anyone <laughs> yeah. had ever heard of. It didn't feel like we were different. It just felt like we were we were learning about each other. And we had something, hmm. st- you know, strange and different to contribute to that.
3: Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's 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 kind of my experience, too, meaning that I don't remember a lot. Of students of Asian descent, um, whether East Asian or South Asian or uh, AAPI in the broadest sense, um, I remember a few like in my classes, and uh, and Ben's going to be totally embarrassed by me telling this story. But I had a classmate in a in a speech class. Actually, it was an acting class. It was drama, and um, and he had an accent. He was probably Filipino descent. Um, And one day we were all doing improv and sort of the prompt was like, you know, he had to say something equivalent, Ben is shaking his head like bad day. Um, But it came out bad day. And for years, Ben and I kind of like, if we had a bad day, we adopted his Filipino accent. And like, there's all kind of fucked up about it. Right. But like, if I'm being honest, it was partly the foreignness of this Filipino kid uh, in a black-white school, that kind of made the accent stick out, and then became a kind of inside joke between us when we actually used the word, like, "Yo, how was your day?" I had, you know, he he would say it or I would say it. Anyway, I think you know if this show is going to be true to itself, and if we're going to talk about these issues in a in a world that is really crazy right now, and, and the topic that we're talking about, you know, I got to own my own my own shit in that that great high school that we all went to.
5: Cleo, I think we all had it. I mean, yeah, there are all kinds of stereotypes about people of every background right Mm -hmm. and i think in some ways it was it was good that we had a few because you could kind of the part that i did like was that you kind of represent and 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 wander so you you didn't have you know the indian kid that people call gandhi also did graffiti and and, (laughs) you know and swam and got himself in trouble and was walking around and you know so that's that's the part that that you break up the the stereotypes right and and you need that because otherwise you only know the accents and, and whatever it is that you got on TV.
4: Yeah, so th- this gets us a Rima to, to what we're talking about today, which is diversity. And the recent Supreme Court decision, which got rid of affirmative action as far as a decision in college admissions. And we wanna hear more about like your career trajectory and the work you've done as a civil rights attorney um, with the NAACP, with the Obama Justice Department, that really working on cases just like this. And can you talk about sort of the, really like the decades of work you've done that give context for this moment on on affirmative action?
5: So I think it all comes back to Kenwood. Mm -hmm. I think I I went into college thinking I was going to be a doctor like most Indian kids. And, you know, I didn't do so well in organic chemistry. (laughs) So that was the end of that. And then, Mm -hmm. you know, I think about how extraordinary all these people we grew up with are mm. right and you know there were people who would rap in the hallways and the way they understood the world and the way they talked about the world was smarter than anything else i had come across right just just to be able to take it all in mm-hmm. and 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 figure it out in a moment right and um and so that's the my my friends growing up from from those who weren't sure where their parents were. Were sometimes homeless. Some of whom, you know, grew up in very difficult circumstances. Some of the most, you know, extraordinary seers of what was going on around us. Um, those, those are the folks who should have had the same shots that I did, right? And 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 we went to the same high school. But I had parents who were middle class parents who had all kinds of opportunities that I got um, because of that. And and so. I uh I think that's why um I wanted to to do something in education.
3: Can I and pause you on because, that Anna Reid for a second? Yeah, sure. Cuz sure. I think you're saying something that is really relevant to the to the larger conversation we're having. So you're basically saying that out of the experience of being part of a small minority, meaning an Indian descendant kid in a largely black white school, like for you diversity was a win win win, meaning you came to see kids in this Space where you're learning. You when you said the word "seers," like you could, you're sort of learning from people because their diversity was on full view from your perspective. They were very much not like you, um, and you're saying that you partly in college discovered that you're like, "Hey, I want to make sure there are as many schools in this country that replicate the kind of experience I had." Is that what is that what you're saying in terms of like? translating your own personal experience into your career choice?
5: Yes. And in the sense that it's not that they were not like me, it's that they were like me, Hmm. right? And in some ways so much better than me, right? Hmm. In in terms of what they had to navigate and the ways in which they found to navigate it. We joke about this, but like we used to sit outside. Y'all did too, right? Playing Foursquare and having conversations. And it was back to the place where like, The the most like the way you would learn with those conversations after school about all kinds of stuff, about music, about, you know, what was going on in the world, what was going down, down the street. And you start to learn about how the world works Mm. that way. Like that's that's your education.
4: Anurima, I want I want to jump ahead to say your years in the in the civil rights division of the Department of Justice. Describe some of the cases that you're working on and sort of what that means for affirmative action.
5: Sure. So I'm working, I, let me let me start with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and then to the Justice Department. Okay. And in both places, the bulk, like hundreds of cases were about segregation in schools around the country. And, right. and the fact that there are cases that had been around longer than I've been alive about, you know, the ways in which schools were still, um, you know, you could, you could map them in places mm. on different sides of train tracks, all black or all white, and how opportunities map that way. Right? So the reason I wanted to do those kinds of cases is because we spend so much time thinking about outcomes, like, like how to, you know, how are kids doing on tests? But, but these were cases about like the fundamentals, like, do you actually have a building? Do you have teachers? Do you have staff? You know, do, are, 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 do you have the resources for, for students who the only difference between them is, is race in some cases in class, right? And they have a very different educational experience, you know, in nearby areas. Right. And so, I, I think about all the ways in which we learn from each other. We learned what unites us right, by being in class together in high school. But it was also the kind of resources that we ended up having being at one of the few high schools in Chicago yeah. that was sort of a magnet high school. Right. So both things really drove the kind of work we were doing um, in, in the Justice Department and at the Legal Defense Fund.
4: So the vast majority of schools in the nation are still almost completely segregated. Like 75% of students go to either an all white school or an all black school. And what you're saying too is they're not just separate, but they're still separate and unequal.
5: We are separate and unequal. Yeah. And we are at a place where our schools across the country are as segregated as they were in 1970. And so all of the things that we're trying to talk about in America today that we had a chance to, to do differently at Kenwood, if we are separated, we look at people who are different from our, ourselves, and we've never been in spaces with them. So, what do we what do we go to? We go to fear. We go to the unknown. We go to those types of things. And I think that's that's the thing that I'm really you wor- know I continue to be worried about, which is the more segregated we are, the more we create the breeding grounds for fear, yeah. for hate, for divides.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right, Anarima. So. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about this recent Supreme Court decision on affirmative action and a really poor forecast for the future of this country. We'll be right back after the break.
1: Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company.
2: The most innovative companies are going further with T mobile for business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is it, your moment. This is your time to
0: make your comeback with Purdue Global.
4: We are back on Some of My Best Friends Are with one of our best friends, Anarima Bargava. Anarima, you are the perfect person to talk to us about the recent Supreme Court affirmative action decision. And could you please sum up for us what just happened? What is the Students for Fair Admissions versus Harvard and the University of North Carolina?
5: So I'm going to start with the decisions and what the court came down and said and then i'll go to what this is all about because it's, a, a, really yeah, yeah. Set yeah. it's yeah. a really big setup it's a really big setup well i so did say decision- i did say sum up <laughs> <And not laughs> so, up, sum up. so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna sum up i'm gonna sum up the setup that's what's gonna happen here and i'm gonna talk about the way that the justices the justices fell into the setup so um let me just start by saying this this decision like Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson talked about, lacks any kind of coherence. Like it's ahistorical, it doesn't make any sense, and it doesn't make that much sense legally. Because because really what this is about is there are interests that we have, and one of the interests that we have in America is to actually have people be in diverse spaces, okay. um, to talk about the way in which that's a strength. Um, that we can take account of race in very limited and narrow ways to try and create spaces that are diverse. And that was something that we're, that schools were able to do uh, for the last uh, many, many years. Uh, the Supreme Court decision in 2003 out of the University of Michigan, there were two, two decisions um, about how you could actually take account of race uh, in, in, in the context of higher education. And what, what the court basically said back then was, uh, we're going to give Colleges, some some leeway. And, um, and and let me be clear, we're only talking about when we're talking about higher education, mm-hmm. we're only talking about um, about 200 colleges and universities that are actually selective, which means they take less than 50 percent of students. And so this is I mean, a case meaning, meaning
4: every other school, like pretty you can most schools you apply and you can get in like they, they yes. need students. Yeah,
5: yes. They, they want you. They want you. They want your money. They yeah. want you to get there. Right. And yeah. so um, so so we're talking about about 200 college universities and of those mm-hmm. that these cases are about two of the most elite, Harvard and the University of North Carolina, one private, one public. Yeah. And, Old, oldest uh,
4: private and o- oldest public. They were chosen probably very strategically here.
5: They were absolutely chosen. So this is this, these are cases about how do we describe merit? You know, what, 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 is, what is our definition of who is meritorious um, to be able to get into elite spaces, which has a long history uh, in American law, but more importantly, they're much more about humanity, right? Which is how do we actually think about the many talents and the many things that people bring, things like judgment and the kind of obstacles? And what I was talking about at Kenwood, all these students who were able to op- overcome so many different things. And so what the Supreme Court's saying is, you can look at every factor uh, about a student except for their race, everything else. And, um, and, and then they did some weird things, right. Which they said, well, actually you can look at everything and, 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 you know, but race, but if a student wants to write an essay about race and, you know, for example, I, I'm, I love black comic books. Like I love the new series that came out about Wakanda, um, in comic book style. Right. And, The only thing you can talk about about that is that they love comic books and not about the fact um, that they, you know, maybe black and that resonates with them. There was a real concern that these decisions would actually say, you can't talk about your own stories um, and you can't talk about your experiences. They didn't quite go that far. But the second thing they do is, um, you know, back to that, the way I started, when there's something really important, like a compelling interest, which is the way the legal world talks about it, like diversity, can you still pursue that? And the answer from the court is, in in, in the way I read it, yes. But the court says, hey, we're not institutionally competent to figure out whether or not you've actually gotten the benefits of diversity. So we don't know. There's no way to sort of measure that. and We don't know how to concretely measure it. And so because of that, we're going to say you can't really consider race. Well, of course you can't measure it. How could you possibly measure what it is that the benefits that the three of us got from being able to go to school together. Like there's right. there's no way to be able to to think about that. And so the big answer is they took out race as a factor. Um and um for for people to consider. And the only place we think you can still go on is the military. And so this is the one exception which is they say you can th- you can take account of diversity with account to the military and as Justice Jackson notes, it's basically saying like we want black and brown kids to go to the bunker but not to the boardroom,
4: right? And Anarima, you're, you're, I mean, you, you've laid out so many things, and you know the, this idea that we're like post civil rights, post racial, which is part of uh, Chief Justice's Roberts' argument that we don't need this anymore, and all of your work of showing just how segregated and unequal the country is still—it's just such a farce.
3: Can, can, I, can I add one thought on this? I am upset about what you just described. I mean, the disadvantage, the privilege, the segregated schools, the lack of resources, the pathways to dead ends, all of it. Like, it's all there. But look, the Constitution does not protect or guarantee class equality. The Constitution doesn't give a shit about poor people. It doesn't care about opportunity structures they have. So there is actually some basis for the court to say, we don't care about legacy. We don't care about white privilege. And we understand that it can be passed on, but that is not what we're solving for here. So the problem we have because of the Supreme Court decision, this notion that the Constitution guarantees colorblindness. But, you know, there is no amendment for poor people's rights in this legacy debate, whether they happen to be black or South Asian or Latino or anything when it comes to getting into college.
5: So this is where the Constitution ends up playing out in really perverse ways right so what the supreme court and others have said right is that class is not something that we are are is protected in america so if you're poor as you just said if you're poor you are lower income don't have the kind of wealth that other people around you might have um there's there's no you know sort of ways in which we try to address you being discriminated against or if there are barriers about that or there's opportunities you don't have because of your class that's not something that the constitution is worried about on the flip side it says if, if things map because of race, if you're discriminated against because of race, or if you want to take race into account in some ways, we're actually going to apply the hardest legal standard to that. Whenever race comes into play, we're going to look at it really, really closely. And so it just ends up being a strange – we're in a strange place to begin with. And then just just to put this in there, what Robert, what Chief Justice, Justice Roberts does, which is just ext- – you know, it's mind-boggling, again, which is what he says is – it doesn't really matter if you're using race in a way to benefit people or to discriminate or harm people. What he's saying is, you know, you can't stop discrimination on the basis of race by discriminating on the basis of race. That's coming from from another decision in 2007 about a diversity in K through 12 schools. So he said that, that then. and he, what he says here is anytime you're using race, someone might benefit, but someone's going to lose. And so you can't use it, right? This is where the, the Justice Jackson and Justice Sotomayor, are just like, what world are you in? Because you're basically saying, we are in a a society that is mapped by race, and then you have to be colorblind, right? And then you have to be colorblind. And so that is what you're getting from Chief Justice Roberts is basically a complete lack of regard to the way in which race still has a role in all kinds of measurable and concrete ways in America, right? He's just ignoring all of it and saying yeah, just in this one little moment, we don't want to use race because it it makes us feel icky, right? Um, But we're not talking about the fact that everything that leads up to that moment from pre-K to 12th grade, the ways that race race plays out into whether or not you even have a shot at that admissions moment, we're just going to ignore all of that because we just want to make sure that one little moment is colorblind.
4: Right, right. All right, Anarima, you said that this case actually used Asian American students as part of the lawsuit and that they were being discriminated against at places like Harvard, where they make up about twenty-nine percent of the students. Um, and the idea that there could be even be more. Um I'm interested. You were in the courtroom when these cases were heard. Can you describe like who was actually who the plaintiffs were, what they looked like racially even?
5: So I was in the Supreme Court uh when the Harvard and and UNC cases were argued. And I was in the first row of the Supreme Court bar section, which means I'm basically in the first row of the courtroom. And in front of me, arguing for Chinese students were six white men. Hmm. So students for fair admission says they have about 20,000 members, but they don't tell you who those members are. And throughout the entirety of the Harvard case, there is not one Asian student who came out to testify in court about Crazy. the discrimination that they experienced. So the, the plaintiff here is not Asian or Chinese students. It is this organization, we don't know who the members are, that is led by a guy named Ed Bloom. And Ed Bloom is someone who has been bringing cases, challenging voting rights, challenging the ways in which race has a role in trying to promote quality in America in all different parts of, of our lives. And so this is just, when I say it's a setup, you're setting it up by talking about, as we talked, the oldest elite private and public university. You're trying, because there had been many attempts to sort of have this be on behalf of white students, they went to that old trope, divide and conquer. Let's try to figure out a way to pit communities of color against each other and to have, you know, if the if the blame comes down, it's not going to go to white people. It's not going to go to those legacy or donor Communities, right, um, or students, it's going to go to Chinese students or other AAPI students for being the reason that, in some ways, affirmative action or the consideration of race got brought down, right? And so, this is mm. this is this is old old tropes that go back to even you know in the Supreme Court a hundred years ago when there were a lot of cases around who's white in America, and you see you know different people, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, trying to demonstrate that they're white, and and by they d- demonstrate it by trying to. You know, show how they're different from other people of color. So when you think about the court that day, it's just a, another example of um, our communities being used um, to to for some people to hold power and to continue their grip on power in this country and on the narrative. Yeah, yeah. And so we end up in a situation where we're trying to fit their narrative. And so this, you know, the the, the thing that just struck me in court is that you have Justice Clarence Thomas sitting there over and over going, being like, you know, I don't know what this diversity thing is. Like, I don't know what it means. And I'm like, first of all, y'all came up with it. Like the Supreme Court is the one who came up with it. And secondly, I just wanted someone to look at him and be like, I don't know. You tell me it's the only reason you're here. Like at some level, like, It's just the the idea that you're questioning, you know, the very ways in which you've set up the structure and the system and you've benefited from it. You know, like Clarence Thomas has benefited from the very thing that he doesn't know what it is or how it exists.
3: Right. You know, Anurima, I just want to clarify here that Justice Thomas did, in fact, get into Yale in 1971. And this is the same year they started an affirmative action program. So there is no question that the guy who's been the only person of color on the bench for nearly 20 years benefited directly from affirmative action. But here's the interesting thing. His dislike of affirmative action is precisely because he took it personal that people could question whether he qualified to get into Yale. And so he has seen affirmative action as a stigma that is attached to black people which is unfair. It's his own personal uh commitment. In this Supreme Court decision, he actually makes the argument that by getting rid of any form of racial discrimination in his own language that even would help black people, he is upholding the truest principle of equality. He sees himself as the true vanguard of racial equality in America. I mean, it's just absolutely bizarre because of course at the end of the day, you'd have to whitewash or make disappear all of the systemic racism that still exists in our country.
5: You know, I didn't do what Khalil did, which is I didn't bother to spend my time reading Justice Thomas's opinion because um, I'm not going to sit here and try and understand how you could cast something like Brown versus Board of Education as a moment of colorblindness. Brown versus Board of Education was a moment of extraordinary recognition of the ways in which race has mapped, you know, what kind of opportunity we have, the ways in which it's played out in terms of segregation. And so for Justice Thomas to say anything different about, you know, what the law says or the constitution says or even what brown says is is something that again is trying to all of a sudden recast words yeah. in ways that have the most limited meaning and don't mean anything in terms of how we actually live and learn and educate and love, and 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 promote something different in the world today.
3: So, Anna Marima, um, I mean, it, obviously, I think this is personal for all of us, you know, in this conversation, in in same and and maybe even slightly different ways. I know for me, I had a number of Asian American students who I was teaching at the time that Harvard first won the case in the lower courts. Um, And so there's been an ongoing um, conversation on the Harvard campus, there's been organizing. And one of the things I was struck by was diversity amongst the AAPI community. Many of my students who often self-select into a course which I teach about the history of racism saw this for what you and I would agree was a setup, a way of further dismantling the opportunity structures in this country to deny and erase the history of racism and the ongoing problem of systemic racism. But for other students on campus, who sometimes indexed as first-generation Chinese immigrant students, um, there was this sense of, we are defending meritocracy. We want the system to work this way, colorblind. I mean, within your community, and I'm speaking specifically here, of Asian American community, is there diversity? I mean, did you have to have arguments with people you know or one degree removed from folks you know about this issue?
5: So... so to Khalil's question yes there's diversity and i think part of it goes to this very question that that ben posed about like what's the definition of merit and if you if, and we define merit based on test scores mm-hmm. right which is you know in, in the in the in the asian american community and frankly in in a lot of communities in which like you know there's this idea of of test scores or how you do in terms of your grades being the the, the measure of your worth what happens when we tell people that test scores and your grades are, are are what you are worth, which we know are heavily, if not, an, you know, almost exclusively influenced by things like wealth and income, right? You know, whether or not you can take a test prep course, whether or not you're able to actually even have the opportunity to learn. And in New York City schools, you know, most kids don't even have the opportunity to learn the things that are being tested on to get into sort of specialized elite high schools, right? They're not learning it. And so the only way to get there is to, to be able to, you know, take a test prep course or, or be in a private school. And so when you sit you sit there and think about that, you're like, this is this is, this is the first problem of merit. Then there's the problems of how we see ourselves, right? And do we see ourselves as those who are part of a larger community, right? In which we have a lot that unites us with people who are different than us. And this is where, I, you know, I'll go again back to Kenwood, which is you know, that's what I got the privilege and the honor of learning early, mm-hmm. which is to go to an elementary school on the south side of Chicago that was largely black um, and to go to a high school that was largely black. Right. And to recognize that there are so much that the, the stories that we are being told about ourselves are not actually the reality of, of, of who we are and how weird and nerdy and strange, you know, the two of you and the rest of us have been. You know, like that's mm-hmm. that's that's mm-hmm. actually true. Right. And we need to be able to celebrate that. In, in, and celebrate ourselves and all of all of the things that we're worthy um, of being, right and and not just narrow ourselves to test scores and GPA. And that's what these cases were trying to do is suggest that that's the only thing that we need to be sort of measuring people on. And so this is a setup because not only because it's Harvard and UNC, not only because it was Asian American students, not only because it's divide and conquer, but in a moment in America in which you know we, we, th- there's a there's an image that's trying to be created, right? of all of us fighting amongst ourselves and this not being a moment of of white people really trying to hold on to power and to erase in some ways our stories outside of, These concrete, measurable things that they say we have to demonstrate.
4: All right. Anarima, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about what this decision means for the future. I also want to say when you said our high school is weird, strange, and nerdy, that you pointed at Khalil when you said nerdy. We'll be right back after the break.
5: (laughs) I I was looking at you though. I was looking at you.
1: JP Morgan Chase Bank NA member FDIC. Copyright 2024 JP Morgan Chase & Company.
2: The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.
0: This is it. Your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global.
3: So, look, Ben, I, I had a theory. It was a, it was a light bulb moment just before the last break that the, the nuttiness okay. of this decision, it turns out, had nothing to do with Chief Justice John Roberts or Clarence Thomas. It was okay, Chat GPT. Right. Chat GPT wrote this decision that explains everything cuz of yeah. course ai only knows what the How constitution it says it doesn't know anything about all this soft and squishy stuff like like bias and stereotype threat and systemic racism because guess what we live in a in a country that doesn't keep track of racism there're no benchmarks on racism Hell, the Supreme Court doesn't even recognize racial disparity as evidence of racism. So, of course, artificial intelligence wrote this Supreme Court decision. Man, oh, man, that explains everything. And, and Clarence, Thomas, Clarence Thomas is so lazy. <laughs> oh, man. You're now, saying that he that's used racist, Chatt-GPT, as my daughter right? justice would say. <laughs>
4: <laughs> no, man, he... He 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 he's spoken the least of any justice ever,
3: and and, and
4: is also That's the longest serving racist. justice ever. Painfully.
3: <laughs> all right, Adam Reba, Ben, yeah. go
4: ahead. Go maybe ahead. maybe. Okay, let's talk about what this decision means for the future. For the future, first of college admissions and the racial makeup of classrooms. Um, all right. So we know that schools still want to like have diverse classrooms. Most of the of these elite schools do, and. You know, let's think about other proxies for race that they might use. And what are some other implications of this?
5: So I, my, my view is that the 200 selective colleges and universities that we're talking about are going to figure this out right? And, and they're going to figure it out in a whole bunch of ways in which um, they've already been working. And, and there've been nine states across America that already were in a position where they couldn't take account of race in the way that the Supreme Court just ruled you can't. So we, right. we have some places where people have been, been looking at this. And so other ways in which we can think about opening up pathways, it can be everything from looking at students' neighborhoods, um, opportunity indexes. There's lots of ways to do this. I think the more important part about these cases are what, it, what they are trying to signal. Right. And and um, as Khalil knows, well, there there are efforts around this country in Florida and Texas, most prominently to to really erase the ways in which rape, race plays a role in, in, in our societies. You know, we can we can talk about Juneteenth, but we can't teach it. And we know that this this decision is already being used by a lot of people, not only in those two states, but around the country. Um, for something that it doesn't even say, right? It, I mean, it doesn't say that that all of a sudden this means you can't, you know, you can't teach certain things or you can't you can't look at something like Black history. But people are going to use it that way. There, it doesn't say that you can't have diversity, equity, inclusion programs. But people are going to try to use it that way. Right. And so this yeah. is this is like this is a decision that some people were waiting for just so they could say, hey, we're done with this whole. Uh, Post George Floyd diversity moment we were having, and um, and we want to again hold on to power in terms of white communities in the way that we have for a long time, and don't want to have to actually go and engage with people. That's what that's what these cases are gonna are are being wielded as a tool for, um, whether or not they're actually what this was about. And and again, this was really about higher education, selective, very narrow um, set of circumstances, uh, but but. Um, It's going to be used to to really question our freedom to learn um, and um, our freedom to be ourselves.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, I love you mentioning freedom to learn, which uh, some people know uh, has been an effort to push back against all the anti-critical race theory legislation around the country. This decision sits squarely within a larger moment that is pushing back against every effort to deal with the unfinished problems of the civil rights movement, which is to say, the problems of the systemic racism, the problems of redlining, the problems of a criminal justice system that nobody would disagree has shown time and time again to have explicit evidence of racist bias in the treatment of black defendants uh, compared to their white counterparts. Part of what is articulated in this decision is a very clear notion that any form of race consciousness is unconstitutional. And so to your point that first today, it's affirmative action, tomorrow it will be DEI, tomorrow will be minority scholarships. It might even be a, a lawsuit to go after funding for HBCUs as inherently discriminatory. I mean, I'm not trying to, to seed ideas for these people, <laughs> but I mean, that's how capacious the underlying logic of this decision is. Should we be that afraid, Anna am I Am I exaggerating?
5: We should absolutely be that afraid because what's behind this is an idea for us to believe that America is not big enough for us all to succeed, right? The, the idea behind all this is to say that in order for somebody to be able to, to thrive, somebody else is being harmed, right? And so if we're always at yes. each other's throats, yeah. that's, like, that's where you get the division that we're seeing in America today. And so not only do we see... This, this real effort to divide us and to suggest to everybody that we're always, always competing or for survival, you know, against people who are of different races than us, right? But it's also exactly what you just said. This is absolutely not about finding a solution. If it was about finding a solution, you would do, you would try to find a solution in the easiest way possible to get to where you want to get to. If we want to, we get to a place where our institutions are places where people can thrive, you know, according to their, to their talent then we would do. We would con- continue to have ways in which we account for people's racial experiences and the kind of obstacles they faced. So what we're doing here is like yeah. making this just a hell of a lot harder and suggesting that any consideration of race is a problem, is something that we should be afraid of. And the only thing that's going to do is to make us more afraid and more divided.
4: Yeah. I just want to underline some of the things you guys are saying that I'm hearing that It does matter who gets into these 200 elite schools in in a lot of ways. But now it actually has real ramifications for who might be in a workplace. And then it is also a signal. It's indicative of what's going on in the country. I mean, I think about what what, uh, Justices Roberts and Thomas said, you know, of denying what's happening in the reality of the present and the past. And that's exactly what you guys are saying. That's what's going on in terms of race in the country right now. We can't talk about the realities of discrimination or inequality, and we're not honest about our past. And that is written into these majority decisions. It's right there.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The the paradigm of colorblindness is coming back with a vengeance. I mean, we've got Uh, Republican primary candidates for whom this is like the key talking point. We, you know, we need colorblindness. The Governor Ron DeSantis redefined diversity, equity and inclusion down in Florida as uh, colorblindness, merit and equality, Uh, which, you know, in a way, and here's the irony for me as a historian, like the Plessy versus Ferguson decision made the argument that in terms of political equality and civil equality, civil rights equality, Black people were equivalent, but they were fundamentally inferior and that the Constitution had no no obligation to ensure social equality when one race be inferior to another. And it seems to me that when this current regime of quote-unquote colorblindness is resurging, part of the argument is, if you are in a poor dilapidated school system, if you happen to be in a red line zip code and you happen to be inferior as a result of it, there is nothing the constitution can do to help you. That's, that is the underlying logic of this. And, uh, and, 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 it, and it basically leaves us uh, fighting with the same tiny tiny weapons that folks had back 100 years ago you know, 50 years before the civil rights movement, when they just had to start one little litigation strategy at a time.
5: It's actually worse than what you say, because it's not even just saying that the constitution or the law can't do anything about it. It's suggesting that it shouldn't, right? And so the idea that we're saying that the constitution and law shouldn't address the very fundamental inequalities, that it shouldn't do that and not just that it can't is, is part of what you're getting from this decision. It's just like, yeah. you know, we're just yeah. going to turn a blind eye to it. At a moment in American history where we are as segregated as we were in 1970, and we're seeing the kind of divides that are fueling the kind of hate and insurrection that we are experiencing in yeah. places across the nation.
3: Yeah. I mean, talk about coming full circle, that essentially our ability to understand and be with each other is the only thing that ultimately will save us uh, from everything that we see happening in this country right now. So we are so happy that you came on, Anarima, truly one of our best friends from back in the day. Right on. Thank you, Anarima. Thank you both. Oh man, aside from being scared to death about what's coming down the pike yeah, in this country, yeah. I have to say, like, you know, there was another version of affirmative action from back in the day I didn't even realize. Oh, uh oh. At a majority black school with all these handsome black guys like myself, here you are, like this. You know, tall, handsome Jewish guy who's getting, you know, all these people crushing on you. Man, affirmative action, full effect.
4: (laughs) You know, but definitely affirming.
3: (laughs) Affirming action, (laughs) that's funny. All right, man. I love you. Love you too. Some of My Best Friends Are is a production of Pushkin Industries. The show is written and hosted by me, Khalil Gibran Muhammad, and my best friend, Ben Austin.
4: It's produced by Lucy Sullivan. Our associate producer is Rachel Yang. It's edited by Sarah Nix. Our engineer is Amanda K. Wong. And our managing producer is Constanza Gallardo.
3: At Pushkin, thanks to Letal Molad, Julia Barton, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, John Schnars, Greta Cohn, and Jacob Weisberg.
4: Our theme song, Little Lily, is by fellow Chicagoan, the brilliant Avery R. Young from his album Tubman. You definitely want to check out his music at his
3: website, AveryR.Young.com. You can find Pushkin on all social platforms at Pushkin Pods, and you can sign up for our newsletter at Pushkin.FM. To find more Pushkin podcasts, listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen.
4: And if you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and a review. And listen, even if you don't like it, give it a five-star rating and a review. And please tell all of your best friends about it. Thank you. Hey, guys, you know what this
2: playground could use? A wine country, huh?
1: A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes!
2: Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
0: What's up, y'all? Janice Torres here. And I'm Austin Hankwitz. We're the hosts of Mind the Business, small business success stories, a podcast presented by iHeartRadio's Ruby Studios and Intuit QuickBooks.